Good morning, folks. Welcome to our online service. And uh, I have the opportunity to finish off the series that we've been doing called A Life Intention. We've been looking at truths in the Bible that appear to contradict each other, but as Christians, we hold them in tension. And for us to, to reject the, this tension, actually to camp out at one end of the spectrums that we find ourselves in with these biblical truths, actually is to miss out on blessing. We've seen the, the, the tension of the, God being sovereign in control of all things and us as human beings having responsibility also. We've looked at the Lord Jesus being fully God and fully man. We've looked at God being a God who has um, wrath against evil and against sin, but he's also a merciful, merciful God. We've looked at the wrestle that we have as sinners and saints and also the tension of us being saved by grace through faith, but also that we are people who are to, to show that faith in obedience in how we live. This week, we come to a tension, a tension that we are all finding ourselves in. Now, folks, the whole issue with these tensions, it's not that Christianity is schizophrenic, that at one minute we, we have to believe one thing, next minute we have to believe another. No, these tensions are good and these tensions are necessary for us and they shouldn't lead us to discouragement, to despair, to hopelessness, or to depression. In fact, if you are experiencing these tensions, as we've gone through this series, that actually they've highlighted these tensions that you, you, you may have, there is a reason for that. And the reason is, you are a pilgrim. The Bible calls you a sojourner, someone who is passing through this world. It actually tells us that we're not of, of this world. We, we live in this world, but we're not, we're not of it. And as pilgrims, as those who are passing through, we are firmly in this world, but we have our eyes set on, which John Bunyan in his wonderful book, Pilgrim's Progress, called the celestial city, heaven itself. Now, as Christians, we are caught in the in-between. We are called in, and the tension we're going to be looking at this week the now and the not yet. As Christians, we live in the now. What the Bible says about us is true now. But we also live in, in a context that is looking forward to something where we will experience all the things that the Bible say about us in all its fullness. We're in this in-between stage. Folks, these truths that we've been spending time looking at over the last few weeks about Jesus, ourselves, our identity, our destiny, the world, and the world's destiny, now are true for us, as I've said. And we do experience them in some form now, but the Bible is clear that we don't experience them in all their fullness now, but one day we will. Let, let me give you an example of some of them. We know that Jesus is the King of all things, we know that to be true now, but also we recognize that not everybody acknowledges that. We know that Jesus has conquered sin, death, hell, but we still suffer and death still happens. But the Bible is clear that one day we will experience the victory of the cross in all its fullness where there will be no sin and there will be no death when Jesus returns. As Christians, folks, we live in the tension of the now and the not yet. The tension of what is true now 
and what will be experienced in all its fullness in the not yet. Another way of looking at it is this, that the kingdom of Jesus is here now, and we experience that, but the kingdom of Jesus is not here in all its fullness. Now, what are the, some of the specific tensions we experience because of the now and the not yet? And I, I've got three that I want us to, to look at today. The first one is this, that Jesus is king of all things, but the world doesn't recognize that he is. That's the first one. The second one is this, that we as Christians are wrestling with knowing and living out the reality of being the children of God. And the third one is that suffering and death are still a part of this world. So the first one is this, Jesus is king of all things, but the world doesn't recognize it. If you read in Matthew 28, verse 18, just before the Lord Jesus tells his disciples to go and tell the world about him, he says this, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So Jesus claims that he is the king of all things and he has authority over all things. It's a claim that Jesus made that I am the king, he said. I have authority over all things. You read in Ephesians when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and he says this, Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all and is in all. See, Paul tells us there that Jesus has been exalted and he has been given authority over all things, over all creation, over all worldly authorities, and he is also the head of the church. So Jesus claims that he is king, the apostle Paul tells us that he is king, and also the writer to the Hebrews says that he is over all things. It says this in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and the Hebrew writer is talking about Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him, Jesus, for a little while, while lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So Jesus has claimed in Matthew that he is the king. Paul has said that everything is subjected to him. And the writer of the Hebrew says that Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor and all things have been put under his feet and all things and all people are subjected to him and that nothing is out of his control. But like the writer of the Hebrews, I'm sure that we would all agree that at present, we don't see everything in subjection to him. The question is, why? That's a tension for us. Why is that? And I think 1 Peter 2 helps us in that. Peter, as he writes to the church, says this, as you come to him, Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, 
Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. See, the reason why we don't see all things subjected to Jesus is because people reject Jesus as king. That's what Peter is saying here. The very person that we are building our lives upon is an offense to people. It is an offense to say that someone else is over your life. It is an offense for people to be told that they have to be subjected to someone else. Folks, we struggle with authority. The world that we live in struggles with some sort of authority. So then to make a claim that a man of 2,000 years ago that has risen from the dead has authority over us, people are offended by that. They were offended by it in Jesus' day. They were offended by it in Paul's day, and they're offended by that today. Now, folks, this is a tension for us as Christians. The tension is that Jesus is king over all things, but what we see and experience is not that everything or everyone seems to be subjected to him. See, we live in a period where most people reject Jesus. People don't recognize him as the king. They don't recognize that his kingdom is here. See, the tension for us is that people reject the very person we are building our lives upon. They are rejecting the very person that we are calling them to build their lives upon. See, they don't acknowledge him and they reject him. Folks, that is the reality of the now and the not yet. The tension is that people don't recognize and they reject Jesus. Now for us, in the midst of that tension, that can bring doubt. That can bring worry. It can bring the temptation to, de to deny him, the temptation not to share the gospel. But folks, I want us to be encouraged that we have a promise of the not yet. As we walk in the tension of the now, we have a promise of the not, the, the not yet that one day Jesus will return and everyone will recognize him and everyone will bow to him, and everyone will acknowledge him as the King of Kings. As Paul writes to the church in Philippi, this is what he says, therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, and that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Folks, the tension is that Jesus is King, and even though people don't acknowledge him, one day they will. One day they will. Now, folks, for us who are Christians, that is a comfort in the midst of the tension of the now and the not yet that we are worshiping someone that the rest of the world seems to be rejecting. But the promise is there. One day everyone will acknowledge that he is king. Folks, if you're not a Christian this morning, what do you make of that? That the Bible itself, the people who are watching this with you, the very person that is sharing this with you, believes that Jesus is king now. And one day he will return 
And even those who reject him now will one day acknowledge who he is. Now, that will be either a wonderful day or a terrifying day. For those of us who are Christians, it will be a wonderful day because our King will be here in all his fullness. But for those who have rejected him in the now, when he arrives, you will acknowledge him. And you won't acknowledge him as somebody who is your saviour, you will acknowledge him as somebody who is your judge. And that is a terrifying day. Folks, can I encourage you? Consider Jesus. Consider who he is. Consider that he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ has continued for thousands of years. And there are people today, this very day, this very minute, this very hour, worshipping and building their lives on him with the hope that he will return. What say you? Consider Jesus. The next tension that we have in the midst of this is, is that we as Christians, we wrestle with knowing and living out the reality of being the children of God. 1 John 3 verse 2 says this, Beloved, beloved loved ones, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Folks, you see that? That John there is writing to beloved ones, loved ones. That's us. He's writing, look, we are God's children now. And that's true of us. What does that mean? That we are forgiven by him. We are pardoned. We have been justified. We are united to Jesus by his spirit. When the father looks at us, he sees us. Folks, the Bible tells us that now we are co-heirs with Jesus and we now have all the blessings in Christ Jesus. That is the reality for us now. But the tension is that even though we know those things to be true, we still have this war waging in us. We looked a couple of weeks ago of this tension of those of us being saints, but also having the struggle with sin. Folks, that war rages in us between the flesh and the spirit, between our old selves and our new selves in Christ Jesus. Now we saw because of the grace of God through faith, we are all these things and we are united to him. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Jesus paid all that is required because of our sin, because of our rejection for God. And because of him, and because he has been raised from the dead, and because of the grace of God that is seen in that, and because of our faith, we are not condemned. So all those things, being forgiven, pardoned, justified, united to Jesus, are true of us now. But the reality is this, we don't experience that in all its fullness now. But there is, in the not yet, the promise that one day we will. We see that in 1 John. But when we know, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And when we see him as he is, what we are going to be will come in all its fullness. We will be like him. We will see him as he is, in his perfection, without sin, and we will be made to be like him. No more war raging within us. No more sin. Folks, we are his children. But when Jesus returns, we will be like him. 
we shall see him and experience the fullness of being forgiven, the fullness of being pardoned, the fullness of what it means to be totally justified, the fullness of being a child of the living God. The tension is that we want that now. The tension is that we want that clarity now. But as Paul says in his letter to the Corinthian church, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then when the perfect one comes, we will see face to face. I read this poem on this verse from 1 John this week. It says this, high is the rank we now possess, but higher we shall rise. Though what we shall hereafter be is hid from mortal eyes. Our souls we know when he appears shall bear his image bright, for all his glory full disclosed shall open to our sight. One day we will be without sin. The war within us will be over and we will be like him. The third tension, folks, that we feel in the now and the not yet is that suffering and death is still a part of this world. See, one of the biggest tensions and one of the biggest stumbling blocks for belief is the issue of suffering. If Jesus is the King, if the kingdom of God is here, why is there suffering? Why do I suffer as his child? Now, I don't have time, folks, this morning to, to, to dive deep into answering those questions now. But as Christians, this is a real tension. So I want to ask one question. Why does suffering appall us so much? Why does it appall us so much? Now, the responses that you may be given and the responses that I will give is because it just doesn't feel fair. Why should they suffer in these ways? Why should that happen to them? It feels wrong. It feels unjust. It actually feels cruel. We feel like that because we, we have this in, in embedded and in inherent desire to love. And we hate it when we see those who we love in pain because of suffering. See, folks, the ideals... The ideals for, for why we are appalled by suffering so much presuppose a moral standard by which we evaluate the world. They presuppose those things. And our outrage at suffering implies things ought to be different. I was chatting to a dear friend this week of mine who has recently lost his father and, is, and has done the eulogy at, 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 his, at his funeral. And one of the things that we spoke about was the reality of death being so abnormal. To, to watch somebody that has brought you up suffer and die and then stand, and at the end of it, there are 15 people in a room looking at a coffin. Folks, every time I do a funeral, when we're confronted with death, the reality is, is, is this. Every person in that room has the feeling that this should be different to what we are experiencing. Now, why is there an ought unless right and wrong have been written into the universe by its creator? Now, folks, people will use suffering to logically prove that there is no God. And sadly, people have used suffering 
to justify walking away from him. But the alternative to there being a God and the alternative of living by some other means actually will make suffering that you experience meaningless. See, suffering causes us to protest against God, but the only protest that can be sustained is on the one that appeals to the justice of God. And folks, our protests only make sense if there is a God that we can protest against. It's really interesting for those that don't hold that there is a God, when they suffer, they want to blame Him. Why is that? See, folks, our cry of why only makes sense if there is a God who knows the answer. Our cry of why shows us that, there is, there is, that this is more than a philosophical debate. This is the reality of the world that we are living, living in. And for those of us who are Christians and for those of you who aren't, can I pose this to you? Suffering may not be pointless. As somebody who knows what it is to suffer, as somebody who is suffering now, suffering may not be pointless. See, folks, the majority of people believe that a good and powerful God would and could prevent suffering. Therefore, since suffering exists, God cannot exist. Or if he does, he doesn't care. Now, folks, this argument assumes that suffering serves no purpose and that it is pointless. Now, the tension that Jesus is king, we are his children, and suffering still exists now, but the not yet promises that one day that suffering will be gone. Now, the tension that we have as Christians, because suffering is real, what is the purpose of suffering as we wait for the return of Jesus? What is that purpose? Folks, the Bible is clear as we read through it. It is clear that sufferings and trials that we face as Christians are used to refine us. They're used to refine our faith. They are used to create hope. They are used to sustain the hope of the fullness of a kingdom that is to come. They are to show us that this world does not meet all our needs. That this world isn't what it should be. And they reveal to us our need for Him. And that tension is heightened in that we don't understand why. We don't understand when. We don't understand who. And we don't understand for what specific reason. But folks, I want us to know this in the now and the not yet, that the suffering and the trials that we are experiencing do have meaning. They are not pointless. Now folks, as somebody that has suffered through the pain of, of illness with a child, that suffers with walking with people in all sorts of difficulties, as, as somebody that is aware of the suffering that many of you are experiencing with broken down relationships and, and health issues and losing people that you love, that I, and, and suffering in ways that actually your life has not panned out in the way that you expected it to pan out. Folks, please take comfort now that in the midst of this tension that we find ourselves in the now and the not yet, what we are suffering does have meaning. What is that meaning ultimately? What is that meaning in the moment? I don't know. But what I know from God's word is that he is refining us. He is showing us our need and our hope for him.
And the wonderful thing is that we are not just left there. Folks, we need uh, to have a perspective on the kingdom to come to help us walk through the tension of the now and the not yet when it comes to the brokenness of this world. We need to know that what awaits is far better than what we are experiencing now, even as those who are the children of God. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemptions of our body. Folks, the world is groaning, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation has had futility subjected upon it, Creation hasn't done anything. It is the brokenness of man that has caused this. And as a result of this, the world is groaning in the pains of childbirth. Why pains of childbirth? Because they know, they know a day, creation knows that a day is coming when the sons of God will be revealed. Jesus will be returned. And actually, creation will not only be free from this suffering, but actually there will be freedom into glory. Creation will function the way that creation was intended to function before the fall of man. And folks, not only is creation groaning, we also are groaning and longing for the redemption of our bodies. Folks, when we suffer, we groan. And without the hope of the not yet, without the hope of the fullness of the kingdom, without the hope that actually what awaits is far more than what we are experiencing. Our groans are just empty sounds. But as Christians, our groans are like the pains of childbirth, knowing that one day it's going to be over and that something will be beautiful. Folks, one day we won't worry about our children. Folks, one day we will experience relationships that are not fractured. Folks, one day the brokenness of deceit and deception and betrayal that you may have experienced from, from a spouse or a child or a parent or a good friend, we won't have to deal with them anymore, those issues. Folks, there will be no health issues for us because on the day that Jesus returns, he will make all things new. And this is what he promises Behold, the dwelling place of God will be with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and they are true. Folks, Jesus the King, 
is making, going to make all things new. And one day there will be no sin, there will be no brokenness, and the fullness of the kingdom will be experienced by those who are His. Folks, we live in attention of the truth of the gospel, and we experience that now. But we will not experience it in all its fullness till Jesus returns. What is true of you and what is true of him is true now. But we long for the day to know that in all its fullness. The now and the not yet. Jesus being the king and his kingdom being here, but not in all its fullness. It is a tension that we are walking through. It's a tension as we acknowledge him as king with nobody else acknowledging him as king. It's a tension as we wrestle through living as the children of God with this war of sin still occurring in our inner being. And it's a tension as, as we experience suffering and death and we see a world that is groaning. But we know that Jesus is, will return as king, make all things new, and sin and death and suffering will be no more. That's what we look forward to. That's what we point our eyes to. That's what we live in light of, that wonderful hope of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, folks, we are still in this tension. So just to close, there are two things that I would want to share with us to help us as we live in this tension, as we long for the return of Jesus. The first one is this. I want us to know the heart of Jesus. I want us to know the heart of Jesus now. Let me take you back. Just before the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross, he spent an evening with his disciples. And the apostle John, in his gospel, records that time for us between chapter 13 and chapter 16 of, of the gospel. Now, verse 1 of chapter 13 precedes all that goes before it in some way. In fact, it actually sums up everything that comes after that in this evening that Jesus has with them. It says this in verse 1 of chapter 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them too the end. Now this one verse, folks, gives us Jesus's thoughts and it gives us Jesus's heart. His thoughts are that his hour to go and be with his Father in glory had come. His destination was glory, the presence of his Father in heaven. Yes, through the cross and through the resurrection, but his thoughts were on the glory of heaven, the place that he had left before he stepped into the darkness. That's where his thoughts were. It says there, his hour had come. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart to be with his Father. But his heart was for his own, his disciples, the ones he'd loved and the ones he would love to the end. Now, folks, John is not just saying the end as in the end before he goes to the cross. No, John is talking about the ones that he loved and the ones that he will love to the end, the ones that he will love forever. The ones that he will love to completion. 
Now here, John is talking about, in this particular part, John is talking about his disciples, the, the men who were immediately with, with him. But when you go to chapter 17, Jesus says th that this love that he has is not only for those disciples, but for all who believe because of their word. That is us. That is us, folks. So, so, so Jesus' thoughts were on the glory of heaven and being in the presence of the Father, but his heart was for us. His heart was for us then. His heart is for us now, and His heart is for us forever. A perfect love that brings perfection, a love that goes all the way. Now, folks, I want us to know the heart of Jesus now. Jesus is in the throne room of heaven, in the midst of the glory and the presence of God, but His heart is for you. His heart is for me. His heart is for His people. Now, and folks, as we go back to John 13, Jesus shows this straight away. And then the first thing that he does is wash his disciples' feet. He gets on his knees. He gets their dirty feet that are full of dust from walking around Jerusalem. And he washes their feet. A menial job that would have been done by servants to serve those before they sat at a table. It was a precursor to how he was going to serve them by giving his life on the cross because of his love for them. Folks, Jesus' heart was for those that he loved. So much so that he went to the cross for them. So much so that he went to the cross for us. And John goes on in chapter 14. That we see the heart of the Lord Jesus. This is what he says in the beginning of chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled, he says. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that, would I, would I, have told you that I go to a pre prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. See, Jesus here, because of his love for them, says to his disciples, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And I'm not only going to go and prepare a place for you, I'm actually going to come back for you and I'm going to take you to that place that I have prepared for you. And then he says, folks, if the, he says, he probably didn't say folks, but he says to his disciples, and if this wasn't true, I wouldn't say it to you. If this wasn't true, I wouldn't say this to you. That's what Jesus is saying there. Folks, Jesus' heart is such that in this tension, he is preparing a place for us in heaven with his Father. And he won't forget us. He's not going to forget us, he said there, there. He's not going to leave us like orphans. He's not going to leave us in the midst of this tension in sixes and sevens. No. His heart is set on coming back for us. His heart is set on back, coming back for those who are his. That is his heart. Thomas Goodwin, an old Puritan preacher, put it this way. It's as if Jesus said, the truth is, I cannot live without you. I shall never be quiet till I have you where I am, so that we may never be apart again. This is the reason of it. 
Heaven shall not hold me, or my Father's company, if I have not you with me. My heart is so set upon you, and if I have any glory, you shall be part of it. You shall be part of it. Folks, that is the heart of Jesus for us now as we live in the tension. He is preparing and He is coming back for us. And the beautiful thing as he engages on that last night with his disciples, he also tells them that whilst he is away, he will send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, who will, amongst other things, reveal to them truth. And one aspect of that truth is the heart of Jesus towards them. The heart of Jesus towards you in the now and the not yet. Folks, Jesus loves you. He loves you. As we walk in this tension, he is 100% committed to coming back for you, for me, for his church. He is 100% committed to bring in you into the fullness of his kingdom. And he is 100% committed to making all things new and relieving the tension that we face. The very tension that actually gives us the appetizer of this future reality now. Folks, I want you in the midst of this tension, as we walk through all these tensions, to know Jesus' heart for you. And that is the most important thing for you to hold on to. Tim Keller, a pastor from America, said this. The great basis of Christian assurance is not on how much our hearts are set on God, but how unshakable his heart is set on us. Jesus' heart is for you now as you walk through this tension. The second thing that I want us to hold on to as we live in this tension is that I want us to respond by living lives worthy of that kingdom that we are in. Paul says, as he writes to the church in Philippi, live lives worthy of the gospel, worthy of the kingdom. Be citizens of the kingdom that you are part of. Folks, these tensions are real. It was the Lord Jesus that says, we are in this world, but we're not of it. Folks, we have one foot on earth, but we have one foot firmly anchored in heaven. So let us live with that kingdom mindset seeking for all things to be done according to his will, according to the reality of his kingdom. Folks, as we live, we should be people who are reaching out to the poor and to the broken and to those who are suffering in our homes and in our communities and in our city. We are the ones who are shards of kingdom light in the midst of this fallen darkness. We should be people who are living lives worthy of this kingdom in the now and the not yet. Folks, we should long to see more people saved from the snare of hell and brought into the light of the kingdom of King Jesus. Folks, we should actively and consciously be pushing back darkness and to see the kingdom of God grow and expand through the proclamation of the gospel and through more church planting all across our city. That's how we as people are to live in the midst of the now and the not yet. And folks, we are to work in joyful hope, knowing that the return of King Jesus and the kingdom will be full and finally established 
when he returns. Folks, a life intention. That's what we live as Christians. But it is tension that brings eternal hope, joy, and peace in Jesus. In all that he's done, in all that he's promised, and in the reality of his heart of love towards us. We live in a life, a life intention. We live in the truths of now and the truths of the not yet. And Jesus has promised to be with us to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you and I praise you for all that you've done. I thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. And Lord Jesus, I thank you that your heart is for us now. I thank you that you are 100% committed, 100% committed to preparing a place, to coming back for us, and committed to taking us home. Lord, in the midst of living in a world that is rejecting you, help us to hold on that you are the king and that you are coming to establish your kingdom in all its fullness. Lord, there's people who wrestle with knowing that we are your children but have this war waging within us. Help us to hold on to the hope that there is no condemnation, but one day when you return, sin will be no more and this wrestle will be gone. And help us, Lord, in the midst of the suffering of this world, that we all experience to some degree that when Jesus returns, that will end. There will be no mourning, there will be no crying, and death will be no more, and you will wipe every tear. You will answer every question, and you will establish a world, a kingdom that we all want. Thanks be to God for this unspeakable gift of grace that you have given to us and you graciously have saved us through your Son, the Lord Jesus. Be with us, bless us and keep us. Make your face shine upon us. And I pray that each in the midst of this real tension would know that peace that surpasses all understanding. I pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.